Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Norman Finkelstein, author and scholar specializing in Israel-Palestine, author of many books, including Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. This is a complete disaster. It's a complete and total disaster for Israel. What has happened? Yesterday, I'm in Bay Ridge. It was unbelievable. Bay Ridge in neighborhood in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. Part of the Palestinian community in New York City. Yeah, it's overwhelmingly Palestinian. Oh, I would say Arab. And of the Arab population, I would say it's predominantly Palestinian. And it was, first of all, huge numbers. Second of all, it was kind of like a Black Lives Matter demonstration. I went on all the demonstrations in uh, during the... Uh, uh, George Floyd demonstra uh, demonstration, uh, uh, George Floyd killing. And it was the same spirit. It was all wall to wall. It was all 20 something year olds. There weren't even that many 30 year olds, believe it or not. And we're talking about thousands of people. It was all young people. It was like the new multinational working class of young people of every race, every religion, every sex, every nationality. It was a George Floyd demonstration, but the theme was Palestine. Now, here's the point. First of all, I've never seen anything like that. It was so festive. If you've ever been to a Palestinian wedding, it was the spirit of a Palestinian wedding. People piled into cars, shouting, screaming, waving the flag in front of the police, in front of the police. Young people climbed the poles and hoisted the Palestinian flag on the traffic light poles. Police didn't do anything, you know? And then the most sobering aspect, the most sobering aspect, up until now, there's not been one demonstration in support of Israel in, the, in, uh, in New York. Do you know, Aaron, if this had been the 1970s, there would be one million Jews gathered on Fifth Avenue in New York in solidarity with Israel under attack. That's what it was. They used to bus in all the Jewish day school kids bus in all the Jewish senior citizens, and it was huge. It was massive, massive. And now we're in the uh, end of the first week of the Israeli assault. There's not been one demonstration. It's really breathtaking what's happened. The New York Times yesterday, it had three front page articles. One, Signaling, signaling Bernie Sanders' uh, op-ed against Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Second, an article on divisions within the Democratic Party, schisms within the Democratic Party on Israel. Third, about the schisms in the Arab community over Israel. It's unheard of. The Washington Post, which usually is even worse than the New York Times, 
even worse than the times on the question of Israel, yesterday or two days ago, I can't remember now, either yesterday or two days ago, it ran an op-ed uh, by Haggai El-Ad, the head of the Israeli human rights organization, Betselem, uh, attacking Israel. And Betselem was actually the leader in the human rights community in denouncing Israel for carrying out crimes against uh, humanity, uh, excuse me, for carrying out a policy of apartheid across Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, including Israel. Um, uh, the Betzalem called Israel a Jewish supremacist state. And it's happening so rapidly, these changes, before your eyes. Perhaps you remember, perhaps you don't. But in 2018, it's just three years ago, during the Great March of Return, uh, there was no demonstrations in New York in support of Gaza. There was nothing. I was quite active then. There was one attempt at a demonstration. It was on May 15th outside Chuck Schumer's office. There were 10 people. Ten. And just to remind people what that was, this was when Palestinians gathered to march on, in Gaza on the barrier with Israel, and they were gunned down with yeah, U.S.-supplied weapons. They were just being systematically mowed down, nonviolent resistors. And these were resistors. If you read the human rights reports, in particular the one that was issued by the U.S. Uh, UN Human Rights Council, um, there were the UN Human Rights Council said that Israel was targeting, targeting children, journalists, med uh, medical personnel, and disabled people. And then they had the descriptions of the various uh, young people, mostly young people, killed, uh, shot down, murdered by these snipers. And they would describe a Palestinian standing by a tree. He's just standing there. He's nowhere near the perimeter of Gaza and Israel. He's 300 meters away. Shoot him dead. A Palestinian sitting in a wheelchair. Shoot him dead. And as I said, for our purposes, or the point I'm trying to make now, it evoked no support at all. There was no international support for Gaza during the Great March of Return. I concluded at the time the cause was dead. It was over. And so now to watch this, it's not entirely clear what's happened. I talked to a lot of young people yesterday, and they attributed, they ascribed it to the uh, social media. I didn't think that went to the heart of the question because the social media were clearly around in 2018. So there's one aspect, uh, I think it's the influence of the Black Lives Matter movement, this heightened sensitivity to racial supremacy and racial domination. And I think that spirit easily transitioned to the Palestinians.
So among the atrocities by Israel and Gaza and this latest assault are just recently, as we're speaking, the worst massacre yet, killing over 40 people, including 10 children, by hitting bombing homes on the road to Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest hospital in Gaza, I believe blocking some of the way there with this bombing. And before that, you also had them bombing the offices of the AP and Al Jazeera. Just based on your study of Israeli history and the mindset of its leadership, what can you tell us about what they, what their thinking is in attacks like this? Well, I want to begin with a, a little bit of historical perspective, since you asked based on my knowledge. Uh, Operation Cast led in 2007 to 8. It begins, it begins. The first act of Operation Cast led was Israel bombs a graduation ceremony of Palestinian civilian police in Gaza. And they kill about two to three hundred Palestinian graduates, police academy graduates, you know, civilian uh, police, uh, kills two to three hundred. So if you compare what they're doing now to say even the first five minutes, literally, literally, first five minutes of Operation uh, Cast Lead, it's still pretty mild by comparison. I'm not making any excuses for it. And I am told, so I have to be very faithful and faithful to and careful about the facts. Uh, I, I understand the intensity of the bombing has been uh, on a much higher magnitude than before. Right, that's the what intensity. residents of Gaza are saying yeah, on social the, media. A the, lot tremors, of the tremors, the intensity. However, the killings itself have been, I would say, as compared to the past, we're a week into the Israeli assault, I would not say the killings have been on the same scale as in the past. I know it's going to sound strange, I'm going to be telling you all these things, and you're going to wonder, is this the same guy I was talking to yesterday? I think that's mostly owing to Biden. I think Biden is warning them. I don't think they're going to go after another high rise. I, I, I don't want to say that with uh, certainty, but you know, AP, where in the, the last high rise they attacked, AP Al Jazeera, they were based in that building, and AP uh, filed a very strong complaint uh, with the State Department. Uh, I think that probably affected Biden. You know, AP is But Norman, look, I, look, that's. If you can understand why that's hard to buy, because Biden said nothing in response publicly to Israel. I don't, think he, I don't think that's the way he operates. I think it's what he says privately. Otherwise, I would have I would have expected. Remember, uh, President Trump was basically a pyromaniac. Wherever he saw a fire, he threw kerosene on it. He was a lunatic. That's not Biden's style. And Biden doesn't want it. Biden wants to be a transformative president. He wants to be the FDR. He doesn't like Netanyahu. He remembers Netanyahu from the Obama administration years when he was the vice president. And he doesn't want that headache of Israel. But he's so, giving him a green light, though. He's, yeah, he, he's giving him a green light 
However, listen, I agree. And maybe it's not even worth speculating, but if you were to ask me, he's giving him a green light within parameters. And the parameters are, if you carry out a large-scale civilian massacre, which is Israel's preference, uh, you lose me. I'm not going to you know, defend you in the, in, in the Security Council. Right now, he's having problems defending Israel in the Security Council because there are members of the Security Council, including China, who want the ceasefire. So he's already having problems. So I don't think he's going to let uh, the Israeli government create new, exacerbate the situation. That's speculation. Now, why they attacked the two high rises? If you look at Operation Protect, excuse, yes, Operation Protective Edge in 2014, they attacked four land, what were called in Gaza, the four landmark buildings. These were high rises, staffed mostly by the middle class uh, in Gaza, and they targeted the four and destroyed them. It was like a computer game. You watch these four buildings just be flattened. They did it in the same way exactly this time. They gave the occupants about uh, two hours. In the case of these high rises, because it's the Palestinian middle class, they gave them, if my memory serves, I could be mistaken, I think they gave them two hours to evacuate because they were hoping that the Palestine, excuse me, the Gazan middle classes would apply more pressure on Hamas to uh, end, end the war. So as one Israeli commentator put it, and he was correct in my opinion, though I arrived at the uh, conclusion independently, he said that the Israelis did this time in the first week, namely the targeting of the high rises, they did this time in the first week what they did in 2014 in the last week. Uh, because they're trying to accelerate the process because they can't do the ground invasion. Israeli soldiers, and I don't want to pretend to be a hero. I don't have, and it's hard for me to even admit, let alone on camera, I don't have great physical courage. I have a certain element, a certain degree, I will grant it, a certain degree, I will admit, I will acknowledge it, a certain degree of moral courage. Physical courage, no, I do not have. Uh, Gandhi, by the way, uh, just as if you're curious, Gandhi admired physical courage much more than moral courage. Yes, that's true. Gandhi admired physical courage much more than moral courage. So I don't want to sound as if I'm putting down Israelis, but the fact is they don't want to fight. No Israeli, you know, Israelis are westernized. They like clubbing, they like the beach, they like to travel. Do they want to die in Gaza? No. You can't win even against tiny, tiny, tiny Gaza. Even if you're the most powerful army in the Middle East, you can't win if you don't want to fight. And that's what Hezbollah discovered in uh, 2006, what uh, the Israelis discovered, the government 
in 2014 during Protective Edge. Once it gets to that ground invasion and the Israeli casualties start mounting, it's a real problem. And 66 casualties was quite a lot for the Israeli army. You know, some people forget, not forget, but their imagination doesn't quite grasp what is Gaza. Gaza is, uh, if you allow me, Aaron, it's in length, it's the size of a marathon. A marathon using American measurements, it's 26.2 miles. The length of Gaza is 25 miles. You know what the width of Gaza is? I mean, you can't even believe this when you start thinking about it. You know what the width of Gaza is? Gaza is twice the length, its width is twice the length of Central Park. Central Park. Central Park goes from 59th Street to 125th Street. That's three miles. Gaza is five miles in width. So it's a uh, marathon by two central parks. With two million people. And there are two million people, one million plus children. Children. And the Israelis can't beat them in a ground invasion. So to return to your question, Israel tried now to do what it did at the end of the Gaza attack in 2014, namely targeting the high rises, what they did at the beginning, excuse me, they tried that now at the beginning of this current uh, attack on Gaza. Uh, so that, I think, was the, so to speak, and it has a military logic to it. It has a reasoning to it. Now, I want to make one other point. And that reasoning which, is, again, that you want to put pressure on the middle class, the professional yes, class. Yes, the prof- to, exactly. The middle class, the professional class, uh, to, tell, to get them to pressure Hamas into surrendering. And if you're Israel, you also maybe want to wipe them out and push them into poverty because you're so sadistic. Uh, there's, look, there is a kind of uh, almost pathological, at this point, hatred of Palestinians. It came out, you know, I was talking to one person yesterday, uh, a young Jewish woman, uh, she attended... She attended, no, she attended Barnard uh, College in New York, the sister school to Columbia. And she was Jewish, and she said she grew up in all the Holocaust um, propaganda, the hysteria. And I asked her... And when you say Holocaust propaganda, you're referring to what you've described as the Holocaust industry, exploiting the memory of the Holocaust to justify Israeli barbarism. Yes. She said it was Holocaust in the morning, Holocaust in the afternoon, Holocaust at night, Holocaust in my summer camp, Holocaust, Holocaust, Holocaust. And she said it was very hard for her to free herself from that hysterical mindset. And I asked her, so what do you think are changing people now? She said, you know, because I I said it because she has uh, asked about her relationship with her, her family. And she said, you know, I just emailed my uh, father and 
I, I showed him the scenes of what's going on in Israel, where these Jewish hooligans are, or Israeli, hooligan, Israeli Jewish hooligans, going around smashing the windows, smashing the stores of, of, uh, Arab, of Arab owners. And she said that, I said to my father, you can't help but think, what does that remind you of? You've written about how, in your view, under, under international law, Hamas has every right to fire these rockets. It's been occupied by Israel for decades. Israel's made no effort to end the occupation. In fact, it's entrenched the occupation and imposed this medieval siege on Gaza. And I accept that view. And I imagine many people out there who are watching this will accept that view too, that Hamas has the right to defend itself, to defend Gaza from, from Israel. But strategically, do you have a sense of what Hamas's strategy is? Because they chose to intervene in the Israeli assault in Jerusalem during the, the theft of Palestinian homes in Sheikh Jarrah, and Hamas intervened by launching these rockets and responding to that and making demands. But certainly they know that that is going to lead to Israel de declaring a so-called right to self-defense and punishing Gaza, and especially punishing Gaza's civilians. So do you have a sense of what Hamas's strategy was in going about all this? Well, Aaron, if you're going to forgive, if you'll forgive me and you're, fear, and you're free to preempt me, um, I don't agree entirely that all the viewers agree with my point of view. Uh, I said how, most. I said most. Most people I watching think, the gray zone certainly think, will agree with that. No, I don't think most do. And I don't, I'm sure I know that Senator Bernie Sanders does not agree with me. And I know that uh, Omar Shaker, who wrote the ex, who was the main author of the excellent Human Rights Watch report on uh, Israeli apartheid, doesn't agree with me. And I know Haggai El Ad doesn't agree with me. And so, if you allow me, before I answer your question, I want to present my reasoning. Okay. Uh, because, and then we are going to wrap. So keep because, that in mind. Yeah. Because um, I don't want to be seen as trying to be radical chic, posturing and posing. I don't want to be seen as irresponsible. I'm 68, I'm go, I will be 68 years old. I'm an old man. I'm too old to be playing games of a child trying to show how radical he or she is. Nonetheless, I'm an old man who nonetheless uh, is faithful to certain basic moral principles which were imparted to me from my parents. So having said that, I do want to respond to the Bernie Sanders, the Haggai El Ads, the Omar Shakers, people who I respect. I respect them a great deal. I'm deeply moved by their willingness to finally face what's happening and to respond in, I think, a, a really impressive way to the way Israel is carrying on. So, whenever I hear this question of does Israel have a right to defend itself, I find the question so perplexing 
so positively weird, that question. In 2003, Baruch Kimmerling, who was a senior sociologist at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, he wrote a book called Politicide. It was about the uh, tenure of Ariel Sharon as Prime Minister of Israel. And at some point in the book, he turns to the question of Gaza, and he writes that Gaza is, quote, the largest concentration camp ever. The largest concentration camp ever. Now, it's not just a phrase that he chose. Remember, it's an Israeli Jew for whom concentration camp has resonance. Remember that he was a senior member of the Hebrew University sociology department, probably the most respected sociologist at the Hebrew University. For our purposes, the real point is that was 2003. That was before Israel imposed that brutal, inhuman, illegal blockade of Gaza. The blockade didn't come until 2006, when the people of Gaza exercised their democratic right in an election, but they elected, from the point of view of the U.S. and Israel, the wrong party to power. And so they had to be punished. Hillary and Clinton so, even said that we shouldn't have let the Palestinians vote. Right. Exactly. And that's when the blockade in its current incarnation began with that election in January 2006, the election that Jimmy Carter called a fully fair and free election. So to make the story short, Baruch Kimberling was calling Gaza the world's, the largest concentration camp ever when Gaza was a pale comparison when it comes to misery, a pale comparison to what it became after 2006 and what it's been for the last 15 years. Now, what is Gaza? We know its size. A marathon by two central parks. We know its demography. It's a majority children under the age of 18. We know its history. 70% are refugees who already lost their homes in Israel, what became Israel. And they went from losing their homes to being confined, trapped in a concentration camp. You say, why don't they use nonviolent means to free themselves? Well, that's what they did in 2018 during the Great March of Return. They engaged in overwhelmingly nonviolent civil resistance to try to end the siege of Gaza. What happened? As the whole world averted its gaze premeditatedly, Israel 
situated snipers along the, the periphery, and they targeted children, medics, journalists, disabled people. So you ask the question. The question is always put, doesn't Israel have the right to defend itself? I put the question differently. I pose it as a different rhetorical question. My rhetorical question to Bernie Sanders, for whom I have the highest regard, not least because he attended my high school, for whom I have the highest regard, for Omar Shaker, for whom I have the highest regard plus, because he's been really outstanding the past week, for Hagai El-Ad, for whom I have the highest regard plus plus, because I'm saying these things from my apartment in Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn. Now, admittedly, it's an all Jewish neighborhood and a lot of crazy Russians here, but still, it's Ocean Parkway, Brooklyn. He's saying it from Israel. So in terms of physical courage, we're in different leagues. I acknowledge that. But I say to all of them, you all use the rhetorical question, Does Israel, doesn't Israel have the right to self-defense? I ask you this question, do concentration camp guards have the right to self-defense? That to me is a very perplexing question because the answer is just perfectly obvious. Do concentration camp guards have the right self-defense. If you read the new Human Rights Watch report, it says that Israel is committing, as we speak, as we speak, it's committing crimes against humanity in Gaza. Now, what, are the, what does that mean? It means the forcible eviction of Palestinians from their homes in 1948 the denial of them of the right to return to their homes, that's a crime against humanity under international law. That's level one. Level two, on top of that crime against humanity, the very same people who were evicted, the very same people who were victims of a crime against humanity, which in international law ranks higher than a war crime. As Human Rights Watch says, it is an it, meaning crimes against humanity, are, quote, among the most odious crimes in international law, among the most odious. So 70% of the population of Gaza or their descendants have suffered a crime against humanity, their eviction from their homes, the forcible eviction of them from their homes. Then they are confined to this space, the size of one marathon by two central parks. They are confined to this space, denied freedom of movement to leave, to leave and to re-enter Gaza. According to Human Rights Watch, that too 
is a crime against humanity. That's a second crime on top of the first crime. And then the same people, the same people who suffer the first crime against humanity, the second crime against humanity, and then on top of that, every few years Israel goes in to mow the lawn in Gaza. It's massacres, it calls them, it calls them mowing the lawn. Operation Castled 2008-9, Operation Pillar of Defense 2012, Operation Protective Edge 2014, and now a new operation in Gaza. A third crime against humanity. A third crime against humanity. And then you ask the question, does Israel have the right to defend itself? That question means, as I understand it, having read the Human Rights Watch reports, having read the, um, the Human Rights Watch reports, having read the Beth Selim reports, having read all the Human Rights Watch Human Rights reports, that question means to me, does Israel have the right to commit crimes against humanity? Now look, Aaron, I'm not being rhetorical. You see, here's the problem. I take seriously what the Human Rights Watch reports say. I take them seriously. According to Human Rights Watch, the Palestinian refugees have the right of return. I'm not making that argument. I'm not making that argument. It's Human Rights Watch that made the argument. And so if that's factually true, which is what Human Rights Watch says. And then, so does the United Nations. There's right, a right, General Assembly right, resolution. I'm, I'm taking, you know, mainstream centrist American organization, Human Rights Watch. So I say if that's true, then the Palestinian refugees, of which 70% of the Gaza population consists of, they've been suffering a crime against humanity for 73 years. That's what I understand the report to be saying. And then they've been suffering, they say, the lack of freedom of movement in Gaza, you know, the inability to go in and go out, and the denial of allowing goods to go in and go out, that too is a crime against humanity. They've suffered that for 15 years, since 2006. And now, to me, the question becomes, and honestly, I would like to ask Bernie Sanders, I would like to ask Omar Shaker, who I like. I would like to ask Kargai Alad, for whom I have the highest regard, second to none. I would like to ask them, do you think Israel has the right to commit crimes against humanity? If it does not have that right, then the, the people of Gaza have the right to use whatever means are at their disposal to free themselves from that concentration camp. They have every right not just to free them, but to free their children, those one million children from that concentration camp in Gaza. I can't see another argument. 
I would be totally, I hate to play the Holocaust card. I hate to play the Holocaust card. But I would be betraying everything I learned from my parents. If I said, concentration camp guards have the right to self-defense. I swear my parent, my, my mother, would she'd smack me in the face. What, what are you talking about? These are children. A right to self-defense? You have the right to confine children to a concentration camp? Listen to those words. You have the right to trap children in a concentration camp? That's what you're saying when you say Israel has the right to self-defense. That's concretely what it means. Israel is defending its right to maintain that blockade of Gaza. That's what it's doing. It's defending its right to maintain that blockade of Gaza. Can any sane person believe that Israel has the right to trap one million children in the concentration camp? I think that's crazy. I think it's insane. Okay, but going back to my question. So again, accepting your premise as I do that Hamas has every right to fire these rockets because it's defending itself from the Israeli occupation and siege. And mm. Israel has no so-called right to defend itself because it is, as you say, attacking a concentration camp. Is there, a, is there a Hamas strategy? Because you also said earlier that these rockets, although they've improved a little bit, are still not that effective. So I'm wondering, as we close, do you, do you have a sense of what the Hamas strategy is here? No. And you know what, Aaron? I don't pretend to be what I'm not. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I've never been in the military. I've never studied military history. I don't want to pretend to be what I'm not. I'm not a tactician. I'm not a strategist, strategist. What I would say to you is this, Aaron, and we'll leave it at that. Um, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, um, many people know about his opposition to violence, but people don't know about the caveats he entered. So I'm going to say to you this, Aaron. Gandhi says there are certain point, there are certain kinds of violence which, when you look at the violence by comparison, relative, relative to the violence of your oppressor, the violence is so trivial by comparison. Gandhi said, I don't consider that violence. So he gives the following two examples. He says, a woman who is being raped, when a woman is being raped, he says, she scratches the rapist. She pummels the rapist. Gandhi said, I don't consider that violence. He says, that's a woman struggling to find the dignity to suffer this violent assault on herself. No strategy, Aaron, no strategy, no calculation. It's the human struggle for a kind of dignity to resist this barbarian. And then he said, Poland in 1939, Poland faced the Wehrmacht, the German army, the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, it had a few weapons, a few tanks, a few bazookas, a few artillery, 
They fired it. Gandhi said, I don't think that's violence. He did. I mean, I know Gandhi. I mean, his work, obviously not him personally, though I've met his granddaughter. Uh, he said, that's not violence. He says, when you compare the two, he says, the Poles, this is their way of showing dignity when their nation is coming under assault. So now let's return to Hamas and the current round. The Israelis, they're evicting the families from East Jerusalem in Sheikh Jarrah. East Jerusalem is the Palestinian capital under international law. West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem designate as the capital of the future state of Palestine. They see these Palestinian families being evicted. Obviously, it has a resonance for a population that's 70% refugees. They also then, see Al-Aqsa Mosque being attacked uh, as well. Then it's Ramadan. It's Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's the holiest night of Al-Aqsa Mosque. And they see these barbarians barge in and start attacking the worshipers. I think personally, as a matter of dignity, I don't know the calculation. When you read the Israeli news, you know, the New Israeli press, everybody is a strategist, everybody's a theoretician, they all know what Hamas is thinking. I don't know what Hamas is thinking. And you know what? I don't care what Hamas is thinking. I honestly don't. I think as a matter of national dignity, as a matter of national dignity, they should have reacted. They should have reacted. Now, a more cautious leadership, like the Iranian leadership, like the Hezbollah leadership, they've suffered many Israeli provocations and they didn't react. The Israelis assassinate the leading uh, Iranian nuclear scientist, they didn't react. The Israelis assassinated the beloved general, Soleimani, so I can't remember his name. Uh, they did react. The Israelis blow up part of the Natanz nuclear reactor. They didn't react. Hezbollah suffered many significant losses in personnel due to Israeli assassinations. They didn't react. Okay, they're more cautious, they're more calculated, they're more patient. But if they did react, if they had reacted, I would have supported them. Israel doesn't have the right to assassinate scientists. So I don't know what Hamas's calculation is. I don't pretend to know. I have no pipeline to Hamas. I don't talk to Hamas leaders, but I don't really care. They had the right to defend their holy sites, their capital, and in the background, they had the right to launch rockets against that merciless state that has the whole population of Gaza 
trapped in a concentration camp. And that's all I care about. I'm not going to pretend to be a strategist or a tactician. I care about the basic moral and legal right to defend yourself against this state that is inflicting compounded crimes against humanity, against the population confined in the space the size of a marathon by two central parks. Norman Fickelstein, we'll leave it there. Author, scholar, his many books include Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. Norman, thank you. You're welcome.